Welcome to another episode of Viatorian Voices Conversations on the Way. This is Pre-Associate Dan Masterton from Vocation Ministry, and I'll be your host for this special episode in our series on Catholic social teaching, A Lively and Enlightened Faith. This episode will unpack the CST theme, Workers' Rights and the Dignity of Work. Catholic Relief Services CST 101 explains it like this. The economy must serve people, not the other way around. Work is more than a way to make a living. It is a form of continuing participation in God's creation. If the dignity of work is to be protected, then the basic rights of workers must be respected. The right to productive work, to decent and fair wages, to the organization and joining of unions, to private property, and to economic initiative. To put it simply, Christ calls us to uphold the inherent value of work so that a just wage and a just economy can serve the individual and society. To help us examine workers' rights and the dignity of work from a Viatorian perspective, we'll first learn about a Viatorian who became well-known in American history for labor mediation. Then we'll listen to some insights about Viderhaus of Hospitality and the work permits of people seeking asylum. Finally, did you know the Viatorians were once involved in a Supreme Court case? We'll take a closer look. At the end of each segment, I'll offer some questions. I invite you to pause the recording to reflect and discuss. Let's go. Part 1. Father John W. R. McGuire, CSV, who died in 1940 at the age of 56, was originally from Ireland and studied at Oxford in England. He later emigrated to the U.S. and became Catholic while living in Chicago. He entered formation for the priesthood with the Diocese of Rockford, Illinois, which sent him for seminary studies to St. Vider College in Bourbonnais. While there, he decided to become a Viatorian. He professed first vows in 1910 and then did final vows and ordination in 1914. Father McGuire worked as a professor of sociology and economics, worked with students on public speaking and collegiate debate, led St. Vider College as president, served with the military as a World War and post-war chaplain, and gave missions to many religious men and women and parishes. Yet Father McGuire was best known for his work as a labor leader. During his 25 years of priesthood, no one championed the cause of labor more than Father McGuire. He was an ardent advocate for the working man and an early pioneer in advocating for a living wage. Workers have a right to unionize and bargain collectively for better working conditions from compensation to safety to benefits and more. When negotiations break down, ownership may lock out the workers from doing their job and stop paying them, or workers may choose to strike, collectively refusing to work until negotiations reach a resolution. Father McGuire was a familiar figure and respected arbitrator. He often attended national labor conferences and became well-known across the U.S. In his career, he was called on to mediate 90 labor strike negotiations. His last strike settlement was perhaps his most famous, at the Green Mountain Dam and Power Plant, which the Warner Construction Company built in Colorado for the U.S. Reclamation Bureau. It was among the 87 successful resolutions he helped broker. For years, he also spoke weekly on the radio program, The Catholic Hour, and in this way advanced the teachings of the Church on social and economic topics to mainstream audiences. In 1925, his involvement in an Illinois state government effort to bar union injunctions, brought him to the Capitol. There he presented the bill to the Illinois House of Representatives and received a standing ovation for its pro-worker policy. Father McGuire was ill for much of his adult life, but he continued his priestly duties, 
even as his illness progressed and his doctors ordered complete rest. In fact, even on the day of his death, he said Mass and preached the Sunday homily, and he was also scheduled to speak that evening to a labor organization. Father McGuire was memorialized at a Mass at St. Vider Parish in Chicago, celebrated by Bishop Bernard Scheel, who would later become an archbishop. He was then buried in the community plot at Maternity Cemetery in Bourbonnais. We celebrate a life cut too short, but rich in advocacy and work for justice. Questions for Reflection Viatorians are called to walk with people whose society accounts of little importance. How are workers, especially lower wage and hourly workers, often marginalized? How do we undervalue or pay too little attention to these people? Father McGuire often served as a mediator. What causes two sides to end up in a stalemate and without a resolution? How can a third party help negotiate and identify compromise? Hint, think of your circles of friends and family members and how disagreements unfold there. What sorts of things do you think a company and its management can fairly expect of its workers? What sorts of things can workers and unions fairly expect? How might each side's demands become excessive? Also, this article draws on an obituary done by Viatorian associate Joan Sweeney, our former archivist. For more biographies, visit viatorians.com and check out the In Memoriam section. Part 2. Fighter House of Hospitality is a residential community of young men seeking asylum in the United States. While these young men await their asylum hearings, they are allowed to live and work in the U.S. Fighter House is dedicated to providing a supportive environment of holistic care to walk with these young men in hope, healing, and opportunity. Brother Michael Gosh co-founded Vider House and serves as its Director of Housing and Programs. In these clips from a conversation with our podcast host, Jim Mitchell, Brother Michael describes first how asylum seekers differ from refugees, including how they flee without plans or sponsorship and need greater accompaniment to find safe and secure housing and employment. Then Brother Michael describes the complications of gaining a work permit amid the complex courts and hearings legal system, including helping these young men through trauma. And refugees are people who have already been vetted, usually in another country, by the United Nations Office of the High Commission of Refugees. They come to the United States with a host organization, an apartment. They can apply for benefits right away, and they have people who will help them with schooling and education, etc. Asylum seekers, someone who has fled their country, and that's the important thing to remember, oftentimes people flee. They don't make this big decision, okay, in three weeks I'm going to plan to leave. But they flee, oftentimes persecution. In order to be granted asylum, you must prove that you are persecuted based on one of five areas, either your race, nationality, religion, political opinion, or membership in a social group. And what that could mean is perhaps if you are LGBTQ, you're a member of a special group, and if you're persecuted in your home country for that, you have grounds for seeking asylum. One of the young men who came to Vider House when we first opened when I asked him why he was, came to this country, he said, back home in my village, they kill people like me. Um, he, being a young gay man, he felt that if he was going himself, um, he needed to flee. He needed to leave. The young people who are with us for longer periods of time, their, their cases are much more difficult. Once you file for asylum, your asylum application goes in. After 180 days, if your case has not been called, then... You can apply for work authorization, and once that is approved, which can take two to three to four months, you can start working. 
But when many of our young people came to us, they had a hearing with a hearing officer about their case. The lawyers felt that the young person was not yet ready. They didn't have enough documentation to back up their claims of persecution, and so they canceled the hearing. Well, once the hearing is canceled, then the clock stops ticking in terms of work authorization. Many lawyers thought, okay, we're going to cancel this hearing because they're not ready. We'll, hopefully it will be rescheduled in two to three to four months, five months. Um, but it turns out that five years later, the hearings still have not been rescheduled. Partly that was due to COVID. Partly it was due to a lack of personnel with the United States Immigration Office. So some of our guys have been waiting for a long period of time. Questions for reflection. Asylum seekers flee their life at home, whereas refugees go through more formal processes. Why might this make it more difficult to connect an asylum seeker to a job? Young men at Vider House often need time to process their trauma, and delays or reschedulings with hearings can jeopardize their work permits. What do you think about these processes? How would you want our government to handle a newly arrived person who wants to work while they await a legal hearing? Why might an employer be skeptical or hesitant in hiring an asylum seeker? What concerns are valid? What concerns come from places of fear or intolerance? Also, to hear Jim's whole interview with Brother Michael, listen to episode 36 in the podcast feed. Part 3. Back in the 1970s, a debate became so contentious that it made it all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States. The issue at play was whether or not to allow the Viatorian community to sell land east of St. Vider High School to be developed into low-income housing. It started locally where hearings in Arlington Heights drew hundreds of residents and vocal outbursts on both sides of the issue. The administrators of the village of Arlington Heights objected to the development, citing a long-standing zoning ordinance that called for that land in that neighborhood to retain its single-family character. On the other hand, activists described the decision as discrimination, which functioned as support for the Viatorians who were intending to sell the land for affordable housing development. In a decision handed down on January 11, 1977, the Supreme Court ruled that it was not discrimination that drove the village's local decision to block the development, and consequently, the efforts to rezone the land for multi-use housing were denied. According to Henry Rose from Loyola University Chicago School of Law, Lower courts then were tasked with reviewing claims that federal housing rules were violated. The Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals held that denying the zoning change to allow for affordable housing indeed violated federal rules. Following that decision, all parties agreed to a new plan. The village annexed different land and designated it for affordable housing, which then opened in 1983. The originally contested land that was sold by the Viatorians was not granted a rezone, and so, similarly spaced, single-family homes were then built. The landmark case routinely turns up in law school during classes addressing property law. Additionally, early during the Trump administration, it became part of the legal dispute surrounding the administration's Muslim-focused travel ban. After the ban was put under injunction, judges in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals cited the Viatorian Supreme Court case in their decision against reinstating the ban. Ironically, while the ruling against the Viatorians deferred creating new equity, in this new ruling, the old case was used to upend the travel ban and restore equity. This ruling found that government officials' prior statements 
provided circumstantial evidence of intent of inequity in setting the ban, and that kind of background could be taken into consideration when determining whether discrimination was intended. Questions for reflection. Housing access and discrimination is one way an unjust economy can marginalize people. Think about your neighborhood. How big are the houses? How big are the yards? How spread out is everyone? Do you imagine a working class person could buy or rent a home near you? Why or why not? Why might some people be wary of having townhouses, four-family homes, apartment complexes, and other high-density housing in their neighborhood? What are the legitimate concerns? What concerns come from a place of fear or intolerance? Gentrification is when an area with low property values becomes a high-value area, usually because wealthier developers and homeowners move in. It improves the neighborhood quality of businesses, homes, and stability, but often prices pre-existing residents out of remaining in their neighborhood. How can struggling areas improve without necessarily becoming richer and whiter? Also, this information comes from an article on Viatorians.com, where you can visit to read more from our news archives. Additional information came from a paper by Henry Rose of Loyola University Chicago Law School, entitled, Arlington Heights won in the Supreme Court, but the Fair Housing Act's goal of promoting racial integration save the low-income housing. That's all for this episode. Remember, with workers' rights and the dignity of work, Christ calls us to uphold the inherent value of work so that a just wage and a just economy can serve the individual and society. How will you respond? For more information or to seek accompaniment in vocational discernment, visit Viatorians.com, follow Viatorian USA on social media, or email vocations at viatorians.com. On behalf of the Viatorian community, I'm pre-associate Dan Masterton. Venerable Louis Curbs inspire us. St. Vider, pray for us. Adored and loved be Jesus. Mm-hmm.